I was told I would never walk again. And I was told that I was supposed to accept that new normal. This is your host, Doc Schrock, and this is Life Alive. Let's dip into the how and why healing stories can transform lives, including your own at a time in history when it matters most. It doesn't matter how you started in life, it matters how you restart today. It's that time to reawaken your hope, purpose, and passion, to heal, grow, and find your flow into a life that has meaning. Let's go. Dr. Michael Long, you're on the podcast today. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me, sir. You are welcome. I am excited to learn from you today. So I wanted to start off with a question that I saw on your website. You practice with your wife, Dr. Meg, and it says, never accept your new normal. So before we get into your healing story today, what do you mean by that? Never accept your new normal. Well, you know, in our in our current landscape, the new normal thing has kind of taken on a, a different thought process than what I had originally used that quote for. Um, but I think it's still very fitting when, you know, in my health journey and with a lot of the patients that we see in our office, you know, we get diagnosed or we get they kind of put us in a box with an injury or with a diagnosis. And for me, that box was pretty severe and pretty startling when they first gave me that. And, you know, without going too far into the story right off the bat, I was told I would never walk again. And I was told that I was supposed to accept that new normal. And thankfully, I had some really good therapists and some really good people in my corner that didn't allow me to accept that new normal. And then I was able to heal and move past that. And the same thing with a lot of patients that we see in our office. You know, we work with some pretty complex cases. We, you know, with a couple different neurological centers, you know, one in Jacksonville and one in Atlanta, we get some pretty crazy cases. And a lot of times those people walk in with a you know, sometimes a grocery bag of medical records and tell me that their doctor said, this is as good as they're going to get. Is there anything else that we can do for them? And after hearing that over and over again and knowing what my history was and what my story was, I just kind of started telling people, don't accept that. Don't accept your new normal. The body and the brain is amazing. And we, you know, I've, I've studied neurology for a long time now, and I still don't know very much because neurology as a whole and science as a whole doesn't know that much in the grand scheme of things. And so we put limits on patients and and we accept those limits as patients and even sometimes as doctors. And so the new normal, don't accept your new normal, kind of became my mantra of just because someone says this is your diagnosis or, you know, I always tell patients, so you got called a name. Um, you know, when I got called a name in school, I, I used to tell them, you know, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. So that diagnosis can be kind of the same way. It's not a life sentence. It's not a, um, a thing that happened to you. It's something that you use to learn from and to grow from. So your new normal doesn't have to be in a wheelchair. Your new normal doesn't have to be, you know, Sally with MS or Steve with a concussion we can move past that. We can grow from that and we can get a lot better and we can improve our function. And so that's kind of where that statement came from and where that statement was grown out of. 
Thank you for that. And I have to say that that term new normal has been very popular lately as we have this this COVID situation going on. But without going into that, I just want to tell the listeners that what we're going to talk about today in uh, Dr. Mike's healing story really goes along with some of the specialty training he has now. And he certainly has the authority to speak uh, from a a client's perspective. So maybe you're going through something right now, but also I'm speaking to the doctors out there that are just open-minded people who want to do the best for their patients. So this is for the person that is suffering. This is also very much for the person listening out there that wants to gain wisdom and knowledge from someone that's been through it on both sides. So without further ado, tell us a little bit about um, how your how your healing story started. What happened to you? So um, I'll give you a kind of the crib notes version. Even the crib notes version is, is a, a little lengthy. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was playing football uh, on the JV team and I played tight end and I was going out for a pass in the game against Gladwin. So I grew up in Northern Michigan and I grew up in Manistee and we were playing Gladwin for our Thursday night game. And I went out to catch a pass and it was a a five and out. So basically what that means is you take five steps up the field and then you cut out towards the sideline. And as you make the turn, the quarterback is going to deliver the ball on that step. And everything went according to plan. You know, I got to the five yards, I stuck my foot in the ground and I cut and the ball was there in the air, caught the ball. And as I was catching the ball, I got hit on one shoulder by a linebacker and the other shoulder by the defensive back or cornerback that was kind of behind the play. And when I got hit, they twisted me down and I got to the ground and, you know, there's always a little bit of pain that comes with a hit on the football field, but it wasn't anything that was abnormal. And I actually got up and got back to the huddle and, and I finished that game and actually had one of my better games in high school. And, you know, I had a little bit of pain leaving the game, a little bit of pain in the locker room. But for the most part, again, it was just normal bumps and bruises. And I, you know, ended up going home Thursday night, Friday, went to school spent the day at school and it was homecoming week at our school. So I was involved in doing hall decorations and kind of getting the, the school ready for the big game the following week or that weekend actually, because our varsity played on Saturday and our game for JV was on Thursday. And while I was doing the hall decorations, I started to get a little bit of tightness in my chest and, and I had a little bit of difficulty breathing. It got to be so bad that I went home and, you know, told my mom and she's like, well, you know, we need to get you an x-ray and get you to the hospital, see if something happened in that football game. Because, again, I did have some a little bit of pain in the back, but but nothing too severe. I went to the hospital. They did a x-ray on me. They diagnosed me about an hour later with a pulled muscle and an out of place rib. And they gave me a prescription for a muscle relaxer and a pain med and said, you know, go home, take, take two of these essentially and call me in the morning if anything changes. And so I went home that night. It was Friday night now. And I got home and, and I was pretty tired. They gave me a, a pain med while I was at the doctor's or at the hospital. So I think that kind of wiped me out. And I fell asleep on the couch that night watching TV and woke up about five o'clock in the morning startled because I went to get up and try to go to the bathroom and my legs wouldn't move. 
Um, so obviously I kind of jolted alive at that point, you know, it's like that bad dream. You think you're, uh, you're having and try to wake yourself up from it. Well, I woke myself up from it and still nothing moved, nothing. I couldn't wiggle my toes, couldn't nothing. So screamed for my mom. She was standing next to me about 20 seconds later coming down the stairs and, um, ended up back at the same hospital and they, you know, did a bunch of more tests. They ran a CT scan. They ran a couple MRIs, couldn't figure anything out. And they sent me about an hour north to a bigger hospital. I, I would live in a small town in northern Michigan. And when I got there, the neurologist met me at the front doors of the hospital. And with a safety pin and a black magic marker, he figured out what was going on in about 30 seconds. Um, kind of poked me with the safety pin and said, tell me when it feels sharp. When I said, ow, he drew a line across my chest with the magic marker at about the nipple line and said, you've got a lesion at C7. And, uh, and then the rest is kind of a blur until a day later when I saw him again after, you know, they ran every test under the sun. I think I had MRIs. I had a spinal tap, uh, another CT scan, a couple x-rays. And he walked in my room and looked at my chart and uh, said, you know, you've suffered a spinal infarct, which uh, is medical speak for a stroke. And you had a blood clot in your spine and you'll never walk again. Set my chart down on my table and turned and walked out of the room. Um, so you can imagine how a 15-year-old uh, reacted to that. And I got to a pretty dark place for a little bit. Ended up going to physical therapy that afternoon um, was the first one. They took me down there and she said, welcome to PT. Uh, I'm your intern. I'm going to teach you how to use your wheelchair. There wasn't even any talk about getting me up and walking or any of that. And, you know, being 15 and stubborn and, and maybe not knowing better, I kind of got angry with her and I said, I'm walking out of here. So unless you're going to help me do that, we're, we're done. Like, I don't need to use the wheelchair. I can figure out how to roll around, but I want to learn how to walk and I need to walk out of here. So wow. she's, still, yeah. Thanks. So can I stop you right there for just a second and, and go back to that moment that you, you woke up on the couch? Yeah. Do, do you recall any gut feelings of what, what was going through your mind at that moment? It just, just fear. Um, I didn't know what was going on. You know, it, like I said, it's kind of that you feel like you're dreaming and, um, you know, like, like you, you're having a dream when you go to school and you look down and, and you don't have any pants on kind of thing. It felt the same as that. And then when I realized that I, I was awake and I could see and hear and, you know, shake the cobwebs off of being asleep, it was, uh, it was just fear. It was what's going on. What happened to me? Why isn't my body listening or paying attention? And I screamed so loud that my mom was standing next to me pretty quickly, but so was the neighbor from three houses down. He heard me and thought somebody was, you know, he said, I thought someone was being murdered in here. What's going on? And, and even he came in the house. So it was, I screamed loud enough for him to hear me three houses away. Um, sure. And so with that, your training, so those are the listeners that don't know, uh, Mike was the director of NeuroLife Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about before we go on with your story, because we are going to get your perspective as, as being a doctor now. And it seems very interesting to me how you actually advise clients now and help people in situations where they're, they're feeling that exact same type of fear. Am I correct? 
correct in saying that when they come into you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's your what's your clinical training? So clinical training, uh, we I went to school and studied chiropractic. You know, we'll get to the point of where chiropractic enters my story as we go through. But I started studying chiropractic, and chiropractic got a, a good chunk of it. But while I was in school, they couldn't answer some of the questions like what happened to me and why and, and those different things. So I started studying neuroscience kind of on my own at first, just looking up, well, how did this work and how did that work? And, and then there was uh, a teacher by the name of Dr. Michael Hall, who was a neuro teacher at Parker where I went to school. And he kind of, he, explain things in a way that nobody else had explained things. And he had his background in neuroscience and he had studied under this, you know, uh, what they call functional neurology, what we kind of now call applied clinical neuroscience. And so I started taking the classes in functional neurology and just learning as much as I could about uh, the brain and the nervous system and the spinal cord. So I did three uh, essentially two and a half, almost three years of study in functional neurology. I sat for a board exam uh, to get boarded in functional neurology on top of the four-year doctorate in chiropractic as well. And now I've, I've made a couple programs in, in functional neurology and applied clinical neuroscience as well through Life University. So I've been studying and, and reading everything that I can get my hands on, every research article I can see. And a, and a recurring theme that I talk to a lot of our guests about is perhaps our largest setback in life or our large, one of our largest challenges or a time when we went through the most pain actually became our greatest gift. So yeah. I think you're, a, you're so much a product of that. So let's jump back to the story and what happened after you essentially had had this spinal stroke um, from this hit. And now you're in the hospital and you're not wanting to just on a gut feeling of being young and wanting to live life. You're not going to accept the fact that you can't walk. So take us through what happened next. Yeah. So the physical therapist, you know, thankfully it wasn't a doctor. It wasn't, I got an intern. They stuck me with an intern so that she could learn how to teach me the wheelchair uh, training exercises. And I told her I was going to walk and she said, well, you know, if you can walk three tiles, if you guys can think about uh, the, the stereotypical tiles that are on the floor of a, of a PT room or just anywhere in a hospital, she said, if you can make it three tiles with the walker that's sitting over there, I will, I'll start doing a little bit each day with you and we'll see if we can get your feet moving and your legs moving and, and see what we can do. But we got to do the wheelchair stuff. And I said, okay, I'll agree to that. So she rolled this uh, blue walker over to me with hydraulics and she rolled it up to me and, and then pumped the hydraulics up. So she literally pumped me out of the chair. I didn't even have to stand on my own. And I remember just, you know, I was just playing football four days earlier. So my upper body strength was pretty good. So I remember leaning really, really heavily on my shoulders and my, my upper body and dragging my feet for the three tiles. I was able to move them just enough to uh, get my feet across those three tiles. And, and she said, all right, a deal's a deal. So from then on then, from then on, she started working a little bit with me on strength and my body listened, my brain listened pretty quickly. So it was pretty quick when, 
you know, I was able to start moving my toes and then my ankles and then my knees and then my hips. And through the science of neuroplasticity, we kind of reintroduced my body to my brain. And, and then we just kind of took off and it, you know, it was cool. I had every therapist wanting to work with me because I was, you know, a couple of days before I was the kid that shouldn't walk. And now I was the kid that was standing up on his own with, uh, with the help of a walker. So it happened pretty quickly. And that's how the brain works. When you give the brain sensory stimuli or when you give it information, it's going to pay attention and we can rewire it or remap it, so to speak, pretty quickly. So, so tell us what neuroplasticity is, because this is a, a scientific term that's very, I would say, trendy right now. Uh, I've heard anywhere from neurologists talk about it, which that's their science, uh, to chiropractors, to physical therapists, to even personal trainers, and even people that do uh, meditation. So tell us what that is. Yeah, and it fits in all of those realms. Uh, when we teach neuroscience, we often tell everybody, if you're working with patients, if you're putting your hands on somebody or you're doing something, you're working with the brain. So you might as well learn what it is you're doing to it. Uh, the science of neuroplasticity or, or the term neuroplasticity simply means in layman's, your brain's ability to rewire itself or learn new tricks. When we have damage from a concussion or if we you know, get injured in some way, shape or form, the brain might, that tissue might get damaged, but your brain is moldable. And that's what plasticity means. You have plasticity in your brain from cradle to grave. I always explain it this way to people. When a baby first starts to walk, they get up and they, they kind of stumble. They do what we call the drunk walk and then they might fall over. And the next time they get up, they might be able to take one more step, but they fall the other direction. And then each time they get up and start to walk, they make it a little bit further and a little bit more smoothly. And that's literally the brain rewiring itself or changing what its perception of the environment is and how it reacts to that environment or how it moves around the environment. So you're watching the brain lay down new pathways in a baby. So we always saw that in babies. But what current neuroscience research says and, and some stuff that's pretty recent says we have that all the way from cradle to grave or from birth to death. So not only does the baby rewire the brain and have the ability to learn things, but so does a 90 year old. You know, one of my oldest patients was 93 years old and had Alzheimer's. And it was fun watching her brain still have that plasticity and that ability to rewire itself and relearn how to remember things and how to write her name and how to do those things. So neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to learn new tricks or to be rewired in a certain way. And there we are back to not accepting your new normal, because what you're telling us is that not only this is how we naturally learn everywhere from walking to watching, you know, someone and then just replicating those actions. Uh, we actually learn through this principle of neuroplasticity all the way through our lives. Absolutely. And the more sensory information or more uh, information we have coming in from the environment, whether it's visual, hearing, touch, movement, all of those things rewire our brain in a sense. Thank you for that explanation. I think that uh, what I want to do next is move forward into the next part of your story. Yeah. So, so what happened after, after you started to improve? 
So I, it started, like I said, pretty quickly. I was able to get up and kind of walk around a little bit. Um, obviously with the help of a walker and, and with, um, if you guys remember doing the, the parallel bars in high school, or if you see it in the Olympics, that's something they often use to retrain people how to walk. And that was where I kind of first shined. I was able to walk the whole distance of the parallel bars without any doctors helping me just kind of, and with minimal use of my upper body. So I started to kind of really grow pretty quickly. And, and to go back to a statement you said earlier, sometimes our biggest failures or our biggest, uh, you know, dark cloud becomes our brightest. And that was, that was exactly what happened with me going through this journey. I remember very clearly one of my best days in, in PT was making it down the end of those parallel bars and, and walking further than I'd walked yet. And then thinking I was done and I was out of there, they let me walk my chair back to my room because I was still inpatient at the time. And I was so tired from walking that I took two steps with the chair and I collapsed and hit the ground. And I went from thinking, you know what, I'm done, I'm out of here, to I'm never going to get out of here, I'm never going to get better. And, you know, having to, my dad had to literally pick me up off the floor with one of the physical therapists, put me back in the chair and slowly roll me back to my room, kind of feeling defeated, waking up the next day and going back and having a chance to get at it again and being able to walk again and this time walk my chair down is what was kind of my defining moment. So taking that struggle or taking that negative thing that happened and turning it into motivation the next day and then ultimately you know, being in healthcare now after that event has changed the way that I look at health, changed the way that I look at the brain, the body, and what it means to actually have health and be healthy. So it's, it's kind of rewired my brain in a sense to put me down this path that uh, I kind of like and kind of like where I've gotten to and what I've become. Sure. And oftentimes when I talk to people, I just bring up the value of hope. This podcast is partly about us communally healing because each individual's journey is going to look different. Yeah. However, if we hear someone's healing story or if we talk about our own healing story, it actually provides healing for the mind and it actually strengthens your resolve even more. So thank you for sharing that dark moment with us because you know it's only failure if you quit and there are going to be times when you're going to literally fall down like you did. And then there will be times when we feel like we just got pushed by life or that we, we feel defeated for the day. Um, so take us through, uh, you started to walk the parallel bars and then what happened after that? So then it was just about getting stronger. Uh, they got me strong enough. I was in the hospital all total, just a little over a month. And I was able to leave the hospital kind of on my own. They made me take crutches and a cane and, and all sorts of stuff, which I would take with me to school and leave in my locker and then walk around on my own, uh, being stubborn again. But I knew, you know, being an athlete, that was the only way that I was going to get stronger is if I got stronger and pushed myself. So uh, leaving the hospital, my motor and my strength was pretty good. And I was able to walk enough to get around and go to class. And I did a lot of outpatient physical therapy for about another year. But the sensory or the feeling never really came back. I'd, I couldn't feel pain and I couldn't feel hot and cold 
or vibration or, or, you know, some other senses on my legs after leaving the hospital. And even for a year later, um, so let me just stop you right there. So this would seem kind of like a dream to some people. Like, wow, you mean I, I, I don't have to feel pain? I don't have to feel these sensations? How is that actually uh, dangerous to us when we can't feel? Well, and it was kind of a dream. I made a lot of money and, and won a lot of beers off my friends in high school because I could hold a lighter to my leg longer than anyone else. <laughs> But the downside of that Classic is... Classic teenager. Yeah, exactly. You know, you take that, take it and go and strive. Um, so the downside of that is pain is a signal for your brain to let everything know that it's maybe not okay and you shouldn't continue doing what you're doing. And so I didn't have a pain response per se, but when I would have pain, I would lose control of the limb. Uh, an example, I remember one night when I first realized that I didn't have any pain response and it was kind of jarring, I got up and I think I, I kind of caught my toe on the edge of my bed. I kicked something and instead of having a pain response on my next step, I had no control over that leg. It was like a dead leg. And that lasted for a couple minutes before I could get up and walk again. So pain is your your response of your body to let your know, let your brain know that everything's not okay and that you need to stop what you're doing. When you don't have pain, again, the brain is plastic, meaning it will change to keep you alive and it'll change to allow you to do what you need to do. So for me, the brain change that happened was my body knew I couldn't feel pain, but in the absence of a pain signal, it was going to shut off use of that limb. So for me, I didn't know when I was being hurt, except I wouldn't be able to walk again, or I wouldn't be able to straighten that leg or move that leg. So it was kind of hindering to things, not having that pain sensation. Sure. And it's important because we need light, we need touch, we need vibration, and we need those sensory um, receptors in our body to work. Like you said, uh, pain can be um, just a telephone game of telling your body and your brain Hey, there might not there might be something not right here and something to investigate and inquire about, which I would say is the opposite of what a an opioid or some kind of the, of the medications where they numb your sensation of being able to feel the pain. So oftentimes, even in my office, I'll get people that have a false sense of security if they're on pain medications. Um, what, what was what has been your experience in that? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, um, a lot of the drugs that are out there for pain, whether it's opioids or whether it's antidepressants, uh, I think we kind of miss sometimes the point of physical pain and emotional pain being pretty same. And actually, a lot of doctors now are prescribing antidepressant medications for pain syndromes, uh, which, again, they work on the same basis of what you just said. We feel pain or we feel sadness or we feel something. So we're just going to shut all feeling down and take care of it that way. And that is bad for brain. That is bad for plasticity. We don't want to feel pain all the time, but you have to have that pain signal. You have to have that feeling of sadness for your brain to understand that it needs to switch things up. You need to get up and move. You need to do this. You need to do that. Simply shutting down the signals is is what's going to lead to, you know, if you follow some of the 
the information out there, the WHO and some other organizations say by the year 2050, we're going to be crippled by things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and diseases like autism and other neurological conditions because the brain isn't going to be able to have that same ability to adapt and respond to the environment because it's being blunted and stifled with some of the medications and the lack of movement in our society now. Sure. Um, Almost like an arthritis for the brain. Because the brain, you're saying, can become crippled uh, and degenerate over time if we're not, you know, I hate to say cliche, but if you don't use it, you lose it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another cliche or, or thing I always use is movement is life, right? We have to move to keep our brains healthy. Now, there's a, a book out there called Brain Rules, and, and in it, he says, in order for our brain to truly be healthy, we're supposed to walk 12 miles a day. Now, I know none of us come even close to that, but I think a lot of people in our society don't even come close to one. Um, so we need to move. We need to have that activity. Like I said, more sensory input to your brain, the better it will respond. And movement is the biggest sensory input to our brain. So we need to move to have a healthy brain and have a healthy perception, not only perception of our environment, but our our response to our environment, our, our personality comes from our perception of our reality, meaning all of the sensory information that you take in comes in through receptors, whether it's, you know, vision or sound or touch. And your, your brain takes all that information and it puts it together and it forms what we refer to as your reality or your perception of the world. And then your personality or your response to the world is formed off of that perception. If you're not moving, you're getting a less of a perception of the world around you. Therefore, you're having a blunted or a decreased response to it. So when we look at things like depression, when we look at things like pain syndromes, those are your response to the world as a result of poor movement or poor information coming into the brain, an incomplete picture of the world, if you will. So we need to move. We need to move better. We need to move well. You know, and that's, you know, where I think the chiropractic training with me really comes in too, and where that story ties a lot into mine uh, and really into neuroplasticity and those things as well. So what happened next? The, uh, since we're on the, the subject of movement and then your transition into you had some sort of um, meeting or some sort of uh, encounter with a chiropractor after you were still having some issues at home. Tell us about tell us about that. Yeah. So I, uh, again, left the hospital. Movement was okay. I knew I needed to get stronger, but the sensory was still not good. And I went to the chiropractor. He was the chiropractor that worked on our whole football team. He was one of the guy's dads. And uh, I didn't go to him for, you know, to improve my sensory or, you know, make me feel pain or hot and cold again. I went to him just simply because I had some soreness in my back. I obviously knew I had back issues. And my knowledge of chiropractic at the time was strictly, you know, back go to this guy. Uh, so I went to him to get adjusted and he adjusted me and he was an old school chiropractor. So when I say he adjusted me, it was like a wrestling match. He picked me up and kind of moved me around a lot and talk about movement as life. He definitely incorporated the movement piece in there. I think I felt everything and heard everything pop and crack in my back when he adjusted me. But I went home that night and I was making a shower before bed and I stuck my foot in the tub and I was like, oh, crap, that's hot. 
And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, oh crap, that's hot. So I stuck my toe in there a couple more times and realized I could feel the temperature of the water for the first time since before my injury. Uh, and I was blown away. I had no idea what happened. I went to him the next day and I was like, doc, you know, what did you do? I can feel temperature again. And he gave me some spiel that I didn't know what he was saying then, but you know, now that, you know, the power that made the body heals the body. And all I did was remove the interferences from your system to allow your brain and your body to connect back to each other. And, and for you, it was that, that improved. And, uh, it, I was 15, so I kind of didn't care. It went right over my head. I was just happy that I could feel again. I lost, you know, some money and some bets down the road on holding that lighter to my leg again, but (laughs) I had to repay some of those things that I won earlier, but I was ecstatic. I I could stub my toe and still keep walking, not have to sit down on the floor for three minutes until that sensation kind of came back enough to be able to move. So, um, that's kind of what started my journey into chiropractic school and, and trying to understand what it was that happened to me, both from an injury standpoint, because obviously it wasn't a spinal stroke. Uh, I went and got, you know, I went to the Mayo Clinic. I went to three or four other hospitals and I've got the same amount of hospitals I went to. I have the same amount of diagnoses. And that leads me to, you know, they called me a bunch of names, right? But um, ultimately I was able to move. And, and now after having this, reconnection of my brain to my body, I was able to feel again. And that was really all that mattered for me. Sure. And so we both, we need both components. It seems like it, that you you said you were vastly helped by the strengthening of actually getting you walking and using the muscles again in the hospital. However, you had, you still had some functional deficit there. So I think this is really big where, uh, you know, I'm putting my hand, uh, fingers up in quotes, like alternative medicine, how important it is to not accept that if you gain just a little bit of function and get out of a, a facility like a hospital or a rehab program, that there's still a lot of room for improvement. And I imagine that a lot of people you see have their hands kind of up in the air, like, well, I have just accepted that this is this is as good as, as it's going to get. Can you walk us through how through the principle of neuroplasticity, how there is room for improvement beyond what people think just out of a rehab program or or a hospital setting? Yeah. So, and you know, this as well as, as anybody pain is usually the, the first symptom that we pay attention to. And it's the first one to leave. Uh, Pain and sensation doesn't mean the absence of pain doesn't mean you're healthy. You know, they often say that again. Yeah, they often say the first symptom of heart disease is death, right? You're you're healthy until you're not. Um, when you have heart disease, you might not feel anything until that heart attack. And if the heart attack is bad enough, then that's that's the only symptom you get. So just because we have an absence of symptoms or or I'll say it this way, an absence of things where we pay attention to as far as symptoms doesn't mean there's health or good function there. And you know, if you look at the human body on a kind of a continuum, there's function, there's the ability to get out of bed every morning and go to work and do your thing. And then, you know, if you want to look at it from a physical movement standpoint, there's your professional athlete all the way on the other side of the spectrum. And we exist in that whole continuum or we can exist in that whole continuum. So, you know, we have the ability to make improvements kind of 
infinitely. We don't really understand what the limit is to human uh, performance. You know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it was impossible to run a four minute mile until someone did it. And now high school kids are running four minute miles. Up until two years ago, it was impossible to run a sub two hour marathon until it wasn't. And now you've had multiple people run a sub two hour marathon. So we, you know, we put these again, kind of going back to what we talked to before, we put these limitations on people, whether it's from a performance aspect or a health aspect or a diagnosis aspect. And those limitations are self-defeating, but they're also flat out wrong. There is no new normal. There is no limit. And I think that's what we, you know, if you want to get into some of the theoretical stuff or some of the metaphysical stuff, that's where we put our limitations on ourselves. I don't know that our bodies or our brains have limitations other than the ones that are self-imposed. So we have the ability to improve function and to exist in really whatever functional level we want to. If you're okay just kind of getting by, then then that's where you're at. But I think we should all strive for better than that, for better performance, for better interactions, and and really push the envelope. Sure. And that reminds me of something that you said earlier, that um, when you got injured, and I, I say this because I know there's someone out there going, oh man, I got that car wreck and I was fine right after, or I, w- I had an x-ray and they said nothing was fractured, so I was okay. But then oftentimes chronic pain will uh, start to appear later, three, four weeks down the road. They're like, ooh, my back aches, or I'm getting these headaches that I've never had before. How important is it looking back on what happened to you for people to um, check their function beyond how they feel after they've uh, had an injury, whether that be, you know, in your case, uh, you probably had sustained some sort of concussion or a whiplash from, you know, injury to your neck from this, uh, this football hit. So how important can you speak to that in, in your own clinical experience? Well, yeah, I mean. There was an inflammatory process that started with that hit that continued and, and eventually choked off my spinal cord or the, the information traveling from my brain to the whole rest of my body at the base of my neck. Had I been checked and actually, you know, somebody looking for function rather than, you know, and hospitals are really good for looking at pathology. Is something bleeding that shouldn't be bleeding? Is something growing that shouldn't be growing there? Or is something missing that should be there or fractured? And they ruled out all of those things. But it was my ignorance at the time that I didn't go look to see how my body was functioning. Because all the while, there was this inflammatory process. My body was injured. It just wasn't visible on their scans. But from a functional standpoint, there was a an inflammatory process that was happening underneath. Had I gotten checked for that or gotten you know, something done to stop that inflammatory process, I may have not had to go through what I went through. And I think a lot of people exist in that as well. That's why. What would you say to someone that is having these functional issues or th- thinks, yeah, my, my quality of life is not the same as it was three years ago? Yeah. Can, is there still hope for this person? Absolutely. And, but get it checked out. Don't accept that. You know, I think a lot of times in our society, we just accept brain fog or we just accept a little bit of pain or we just accept that, well, I just don't really want to get out of bed every morning. I do because I got to get to work and feed my family, but it's a struggle. We just kind of accept some of those things and we shouldn't accept those things. Um, again, 
don't accept that as your new normal. Don't accept anything other than, you know, living your best life vibrantly and excitedly as your new normal. If there, if you're anything less than that, then there's something going on. There's some underlying process, something functional going on. So get checked by someone that looks at the body like that. Get checked by someone that says, you know, this is the interference that's going on. This is what we can do to improve that. This is how we're going to turn your brain back up so that you do better and perceive better and, and are better. So going back to the chiropractor, then did you in, uh, increase function or did you continue to improve after that point? Absolutely. Yeah. After you, uh, after you got sensation back? Yeah, that was kind of a stepping off point. Um, you know, I was, I was up and moving and functional. And for the most part, people walking by me wouldn't have known anything was wrong. But for me, I knew there was a lot wrong. I had no balance prior to that because I couldn't, I didn't really know where my feet were. Uh, I didn't have a lot of things. I, you know, that was a stepping off point for me to not just be uh, functional, but to start improving my function overall. And actually, you know, I was a sophomore when I got injured. I actually ended up playing my senior year of football. You went and, back to football. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I would do that now. Yeah. But um, as what a, was going through your mind? Were there any mental barriers to step back into those challenges? I know that a lot of people, even in car accidents and certain situations where they're injured, have sort of uh, uh, their trauma or their their pain or that accident gets stuck in the short term memory, or they have something that's like post traumatic. Um, can that be helped by helping the the, the function, or do you? get into any mental barriers there stepping back on the field oh yeah absolutely you know i did athletic training for a little while i worked with athletes exclusively and we always said when we were rehabbing somebody from an injury that the limb was better before they were better between the years um you know like an acl rehab for instance the 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 ligament the tendons the, the joint is strong way before the brain is okay taking a step again you know i i remember one I was training for football and I was doing squats. And if you've ever done bar squats where you put the weight on the bar and then kind of walk under it, lift it up and, and go down with a, a squat, the bar rests right on the vertebra that I damaged. And I was training and I was doing, for me, what was a heavy squat, maybe a couple hundred pounds at the time. And I felt like tingling in my spine and it was probably something from the bar but it scared me i literally i put i racked the bar i slowly and very gingerly walked out of the weight room and i walked downstairs to the bench in the school and i laid there and i kept wiggling my toes and moving my legs every 30 or 40 seconds just to make sure i still could my body was strong there was i wasn't going to re-injure it doing something like that but that any kind of sensation in my spine anything like that i was hyper aware to and it sent just fear running through my whole body when i realized what was going on or when i thought i realized what was going on so yeah there was a lot of mental hurdles to get over to to get back on the field sure so if there's are any um just high performing athletes out there and they do sustain injury. I know that you have worked with even Olympians, you know, like a, on the NeuroLife Institute page, uh, the bobsledder, the Olympian bobsledder that you guys had worked with. Um, where would you tell them to go to uh, get checked out in the, on, at an institute that uh, looks at these functional and neurological changes? 
Well, selfishly, I mean, I, I work at two of them. I run the NeuroLife Institute in Atlanta, Georgia, and then we have uh, the Brain Optimization Institute down in Jacksonville, Florida as well. Um, but even, you know, just getting adjusted, get to your chiropractor that's near you. If you're, if you're trying to rehab from an injury, there's some research that says following an adjustment, you're 30% stronger, meaning you can move 30% more weight and have that much more activity or that much better connection to your muscles. So when you're rehabbing, you need to get adjusted and you need to have, like my doctor explained to me, you have, you need to have the interferences removed so that your brain can connect to your body more strongly. And when it does that, you get better performance. You get better feeling coming in, better sensory in is better motor out or better movement out. You know, think of it like the computer. You know, we always learn about computer. There's a, a term that they use called GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. Your body's no different. If you have bad sensory information because you've got vertebrae that are locked up or not moving properly, you're going to have bad movements and bad strength and bad balance as a result of that. So, um, yeah, get checked out. Absolutely. I see it every day is I always tell my clients there's, it's not an, or you don't have to do PT or Cairo or uh, neurologist, or it's always, and, cause if you have a couple different teams focusing on different aspects of your health and uh, improving your function, then you're going to get the best result. Absolutely. We all need um, a health team. Yes, absolutely. So I want to ask you a question about um, your what drove you from, you know, having this experience where, uh, you know, it was just kind of your mind saying, no, I will not accept that and wanting to walk again, walk again to actually walking again to then regaining sensory experience. So you have a more dynamic and adapting brain ultimately through this um, going forward. How important how does this tie into actual brain health? And was there, were there any nutritional um, aspects that can help the brain regenerate in, through neuroplasticity? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a loaded question there. That's a good question. Um, so I'll kind of start in the beginning. I think, you know, motivation is, is key in the brain. The way that our brain is set up, what separates our brain from an animal brain is the front part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex. Ours is bigger than any other animal in the animal kingdom. And it's what's allowed us to exist and grow and plan. And you hear the term executive function. Executive function doesn't mean being good in a boardroom. I mean, it, it does help in a boardroom, but it means being able to plan and think and execute and more, most importantly, to work with others and have social interactions and, and communal relationships and not just exist in ourselves for survival, but to work and grow together to build something bigger than ourselves. It's what allows us to see the big picture, to realize it's not the world doesn't revolve around us. You know, when you're three, before you develop your prefrontal cortex, the world revolves around you. As we become more human, as you heal from injury, as you move more, that movement drives that front part of our brain. So the front part of our brain allows us to be social, see the big picture. And for me, that was one of the big things. I had a, a really good support staff or support system in going through what I went through. You know, both of my parents were there, my brother, my teammates, 
everybody was there to help kind of push and and when I got to my darkest stages, they were the ones that I leaned on. And that social interaction, that love from others, that love to others is what allowed that prefrontal cortex to not get so caught up in uh, what's right in front of me or the fact that this guy told me I'd never walk again, but to see the big picture and realize that I can move past it and that this is just a, a barrier in front of me. It's not a wall that I can't get over. So for me, it was that social interaction, the, the support staff, being connected to something bigger than myself. You know, I wanted to walk for my teammates and, and for my little brother as much as I wanted to walk for me. I wanted to show them that, you know, it was possible and that I needed to beat this and, and I needed to get there. So having that accountability, having that interaction, that connection to the community was a big part of it for me at first. And then, you know, once you start going and I start moving and I start actually able to conquer this thing, that was what motivated me on top of that. And motivation, again, comes from that prefrontal cortex. So once you have that social interaction, you're connected to something bigger, then we can start to have that motivation. We can start to grow. We can start to move past all of that. And, um, you know, feeding that essentially with more movement was able to kind of do that. From a, a nutritional standpoint, you know, you wouldn't put uh, junk gas in a Ferrari and expect to get good performance out of it. So foods are monumentally important to the brain. If, you know, I often tell our patients here, don't shop in the center of the grocery store. Let's just keep Let's keep nutrition easy. There's a diet out there for everything. You can go keto, you can go paleo, you can go whatever. Eat foods that you can grow and that you can catch. Um, don't eat things that come out of a box. If you can't pronounce the ingredients, it's probably not good for you. You know, just in general, staying with whole foods, probably more plants, more vegetables than meats, but a well-rounded diet is good. Now, I mean, we could... That's a whole other segment of, you know, specific food types or specific foods for different brain functions. Uh, something that is really, really good for things like concussion is fasting, believe it or not. You know, I, I sit here and I tell you to eat whole foods and then I tell you to not eat anything. Both of those things can help and be good. Both of those things can be true. So fasting, like with concussion patients, we'll do what we refer to as an inter intermittent fast. Your brain goes without food, so it kind of clears out the debris in the dead cells as something to live on. So sometimes a fast is a really good way to jumpstart your brain function and to jumpstart the way, uh, jumpstart that neuroplasticity. Of course, and someone should do that under the under supervision. Yeah, you don't ever want to stop eating, right? You want sure. someone... What do you sure. mean by fasting, just for someone that may not know what that means, and, and how does that actually allow the body to, to heal a little bit faster or at least detox better? Okay, yeah. So to go into the science behind it is we use an intermittent fast. So fasting, the term fasting is simply just not eating, but that's not really a good thing to do for a long period of time. But we use what's called an intermittent fast in our office. So you can eat whatever you want to for for eight hours of the day but for the other 16 hours you just have water so you can get your whole 1500 calories in but you can only do it for eight hours and the reason that we do that is when the brain doesn't have food for a certain amount of time it still needs to make energy so it'll break things down that are in your body 
And where it goes first, it goes to a process called autophagy. And what autophagy means is it cleans out the debris and the dead cells and recycles them and uses those for energy in the absence of glucose or food coming in. So it's essentially like a reset button. Um, and it, it kind of goes and just vacuums up all the garbage that's floating around in your nervous system and in your brain and uses it as energy rather than just allows it to keep floating around out there. And you have something on your blog that's really interesting to me about knowing exactly how old your brain is or what your brain age is. Is that something that someone can look into to, if they're interested or curious? Is there some way that they can find out what their brain age is? Sure. We do testing here in our office um, that gives you a brain age. So we use, you know, your brain does everything, right? It kind of runs the show. But more importantly, it's, it's responsible for thinking quickly and clearly. Uh, it's responsible for balance. And there's normative data out there for what your brain should be able to do correlated with your age. So we've kind of put together a certain set of tests that are important to look at the whole spectrum of brain function. And we have the normative data to support your ability to perform on certain tests and what your ability should be in performance of certain tests. Are there any home tests that someone can use? Um, or any books or resources that they can look more into to what that means? For brain age, mm, I don't know that there's necessarily any books or resources that they'd be able to look into for brain age specifically. Um, there's I, have, I have a question for you. There, One time I was at a seminar and they had a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old and a 70-year-old come up to the front of the room, and they had everyone sit on the floor, like on their butt. And yep. they said, okay, now get up. So can you, and what his explanation was is that it, you should be able to get up without using your hands, and that there is actually some research that um, correlated with mortality rate and being able to functionally just get up off of the floor. Do you know anything about that? Or can you explain why we should functionally just be able to do that? The, the get up test, I call it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like with anything, right? Uh, the get up test comes from movement parameters for health. And if you look, if you remember, I don't know uh, how it was uh, going through school for you, but there used to be a president's fitness test. Sure. And you did it. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, you did it each grade. There was a different aspect to fitness. And that fitness let us know that your body was healthy. But there's also huge correlations of movement and brain health, too. So your that fitness test that you were able to do, you should still be able to do a good amount of that stuff now. I mean, just because our high school is not testing us anymore once we get out of high school doesn't mean we still shouldn't be able to do those things. So the better you move, the healthier your brain and the healthier your movement is. We weren't meant to need a cane or, or a ladder to get up off the floor. We were meant to be able to get up and down on a pretty regular basis. And the reason they, they researched or started looking at that get-up test was um, using it as a measure or a metric for brain health, actually. 
is your physical ability to get up without support, meaning you had to have good muscle strength, muscle tone, but you also had to have good balance. And those are the three hallmarks of a good brain, strong but balanced, both in mental and physical processes. And so how can someone, uh, you said, could you just repeat what those hallmarks of a healthy brain are? I think those are worth repeating. Um, so balance and strength. So I think the easiest way to, to kind of go at the hallmarks would be just good tone, good activation. So we need to be strong. But we also need to be balanced. So you don't want to be too strong. You also need to be able to stand on one leg and, and not fall over. Uh, we need to be able to think clearly and quickly. We don't want to have foggy thinking or not be able to come up with an answer quick. You don't want to have to, you don't want to be forgetting names of people or things like that. Our brain should be able to process the sensory information and react pretty quickly. And just to hit on that, there may be some um, older individuals listening to this podcast. I happen to know just from my own work that, you know, and even people that have parents that one of the number one reasons that people will decline so fast is if they fall. Is this true? And uh, what can we do to improve uh, for our parents, you know, the, the rate of falling so we can decrease it? Yeah. So that again is, is kind of a loaded statement. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest concerns in, in the elderly or in aged people is that they're going to lose their independence and you lose your independence because of a fall. The fall is, is less the reason and more the catalyst, if you will. So the fall doesn't necessarily make your brain not healthy. Your brain's not healthy and that's why you fall. And then a complete lack of movement from having to rehab or um, heal further degenerates the brain or decreases the ability of the brain to stay healthy at all. So one of the things we do with all of our patients is we do balance exercises. So one, you've got to be getting in our office, you've got to get adjusted so that your vertebra are all moving and they're feeding your brain constantly with a stream of sensory input from that movement. And then two, we're checking your balance and your ability to do things like a one-legged stand on each foot on a regular basis. And that's typically what homework is for people is to do balance exercises. You know, one simple thing that I think is really good for people to do is when you're making your coffee up in the morning, Stand on one foot. And the reason I have you do it there is because you got a countertop that'll help you. So I'm not worried as much about them falling or hurting themselves because they have something right there to kind of grab onto. But stand on one foot while you're making your coffee or making your lunch for the day and do it halfway on one foot. And then the other half of doing that, that task, stand on the other foot. And that'll help to improve and maintain balance. Things like taking a dance class are really good. Not only to impress your wife that you scheduled a dance class for her and you, but also that rhythm and that movement and that timing really works on your balance and your coordination. Running or going for a walk, doing those types of things are really important to do even more as you age, that you're getting that movement, that, uh, that blood flow through the legs and through the brain as well to keep your brain connected to your body and understand where your limbs are in space. So just moving, you know, walking is simple, dancing is better, 
and uh, interacting with as many other people as you can is even better yet. Sure. Uh, I want to thank you. We're coming up on the hour here. I just want to thank you for um, one, just being uh, vulnerable and sharing your story. Almost every time that some, I have someone on here, they actually say that it, it helped them to reshare their story. And if it can help one person out there, uh, just grab onto some hope or is in a, a situation or even a practitioner that may be looking into different ways to help their clients. Um, this is why I do this podcast. I just want to thank you for sharing uh, and opening up about that. And then also sharing your expertise. Um, where can people find you? What's the, is the um, brain optimization Institute, the brain OI.com the best place to reach you? Yeah, that's um, our website is brainoi.com um that's the easiest one too yeah or neurolifeinstitute.com as well um you can get to me on both ways and we have facebook pages and and instagram pages for both of those uh the i think it's brain optimization institute for instagram as well as facebook is another really good way to get in touch with me as well sure i'll put all that on the show notes for everyone and I'm also going to put the, I'm going to find a president fitness test and put it on there for everyone to take. I think no matter what your age, right, you, you can always improve your brain age. Yep. And there's some hallmarks to that. Like if you remember the wall set, uh, mm, I do. On your age group, and I can send you all this if you want to put some stuff up on your post. I will do uh, it. There's normative values for your age and a one-legged stand. There's normative values for your age and a wall set. Um, another really good one is how long it takes you to walk a mile. There's a normative value for time for that, for age and how many push-ups you can do. And those are all really good things to one, to work towards and two, just to kind of see where you're at physically as well as mentally. Cause remember physical health and mental health go hand in hand. So, um, people that don't perform as well on the president's fitness test also tend to lose their memory earlier in life. And, you know, those, those things are pretty well documented in research these days. Sure. And I just have to say to those out there that, um, if, if you are struggling with something that like Dr. Mike said, you, he sees a lot of very uh, tough and complex cases in his office and at their institutes. So I just encourage you to reach out if, if you're struggling from something that, um, oftentimes they take cases that almost every other doctor has take a shot at and hasn't been able to improve upon. So just want to speak to your authority there and to your clinical expertise um, just by looking at some of the testimonies on NeuroLife Institute, watching the videos and um, just knowing you as a person and what you've been through. Um, I know that uh, uh, you may have a couple more um, sentences for those listeners that to uh, stay hopeful. What, what would you say, Dr. Mike, if, if you're someone's in a bad way right now, what, what would you say to them to stay hopeful? I would just kind of reiterate that never accept the, your new normal. Um, there's always improvement that can be made. You know, we might not be the right place or wherever you're at right now might not be the right place, but don't accept the limitations that people put on you. Those are, they're, they're made up for the most part. And you can always get better. You can always improve. You can always strive to do a little bit more. And it's, you know, the, the old cliche is one step at a time and it's not, it couldn't be more true for a health journey. You got to take it one step at a time, little, little victories at first and celebrate those little victories and celebrate as much as you can and, and just continue to grow and continue to move forward. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. And in your case, three tiles at the time, right? <laughs> yep. Three, three, literally three steps is all I needed to make it. And that was the, the jump start that I needed. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing with us today. And um, I, I look forward to talking again in the future, maybe on uh, nutrition. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. And there we grow again, Life Alive Tribe. I'm so grateful you stopped by to reawaken your hope, purpose, and passion about this one life we have to live. It's that time for the Life Alive Sound Off. No matter where you are right now, it's time to pick your chin up, roll your shoulders back, and say, I choose to live a life totally alive.